0: Jennifer, we could just go to full screen for those people who are online. Good morning, it's good to see you guys. All right, quick question for those of you who are longtime Portland residents, who here is familiar with the Shanghai Tunnels downtown? Okay. For those of you who don't know, if you went to downtown Portland, to Old Town Chinatown, you'd be walking through these historic buildings and on the surface, it looks like downtown Portland. It's been a while since I've been down there, but let's assume that it's a nice sunny day and all looks well. And you would be ignorant of the fact that beneath your feet lies a network of over five miles of secret tunnels that were used from the late 1800s to the early 1900s for every form of vice and villainy. I'm talking drug dealing, bootlegging, prostitution, and human trafficking. All right? If you want to know more about it, the History Channel has like an hour-long documentary for free on YouTube, you can go watch it. And during that time, uh, something that was really needed were sailors to get on ships traveling from the west coast of the U.S. across the Pacific to Shanghai, China, and these captains of the ships didn't quite care how they got their workers. And so these young, strong men would come into the bar looking for a good time with their friends only to be slipped a knockout drug In their drink, a physical trap door would open up and they'd slide into a holding cell. And hopefully they wouldn't wake up as they are being then shipped onto a barge, loaded onto a ship, and they'd wake up in the middle of the ocean with a choice before them. They can serve as a slave on board the ship or they can get off and die. And it's estimated that thousands of young men were essentially sold into slavery this way. Portland, on the surface, looks so great. And yet, underneath, you'll be, you're in for a nasty surprise because there's all of this scum and villainy. And, and for those of you who catch my subtle Star Wars reference, yes, I am quoting Obi-Wan Kenobi there. All right. It's been a rough week. Um, or I should say, rather, it's, it's been a week full of rough things. Uh, Sterling and I, we are talking about the child care policies that we're revamping here at family of grace and so we had a multi-hour conversation trying to decide like how do we best protect our children from sexual predators and then I started listening to a book on the history of racism and slavery in America and then I talked to a neighbor who went through a divorce in the last couple years and they're a single parent and then when Portland inadvertently closed the school systems down they didn't have steady childcare and one thing led to another and they lost their job and because they lost their job they can't pay their bills and so their car was repossessed and now they're facing their second round of eviction notices oh and they might have cancer and when i think about you guys and what's going on in, in your lives there are people here who are dealing with their own health struggles and, and your life may never be the same and it's really really hard and you're dealing with your own uh, occupational difficulties of various kinds maybe you don't have work you don't have enough work or you you don't have good work you're dealing with relational struggles whether with your spouse with your kids with your neighbor with your parents with your former friend And, and some days on the surface it seems like everything is going well and then we dig a little deeper and and we're in for a nasty surprise but what if life was actually the opposite What if things looked on the surface to be terrible and yet you start digging underneath and instead of being in for a nasty surprise, you're in for one of the best surprises of your life? What if underneath all of this muck, life and blessing and redemption is actually coming to fruition? You just got to hold on long enough to see it. See, my goal this morning is not to depress you, but actually to give you hope because we need hope. And not the kind of hope that is wishful thinking or the kind of hope that says, if I can simply just try harder, I can figure this out, but rather a truth that if we let it invade our lives, it will help us to be resilient in the face of anything that could come our way, and it's a truth that's centered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's why we call it Good News. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, we put some on the back uh, table there, but you can be looking it up, and Matthew's going to share with us just a horrendous story. All right, There's, it's just bad in, in every way we can think of. And yet the way that Matthew shares it, if we dig beneath the surface, we are in for a wondrous, joyful surprise. And it's all about Jesus and the work that God is doing in the world. See, Matthew, he wants us to understand that Jesus is hope for the good, wor- is good news for the entire world. And Jesus came as part of the story of God's redemptive work That comes through the people of Israel. So if you want to know who Jesus is, you cannot take him out of the context of the rest of the biblical story. And so Matthew begins his gospel tying Jesus to the story of Abraham and King David. Matthew continues his gospel showing how Jesus is no ordinary person. All right. His mother was still a virgin when when he was born. All right. And Joseph adopted Jesus as his family. From there, Matthew shares how Jesus is the hope for the whole world and how these Gentile foreigners were the first ones to come and worship the new king. And so these Eastern magi, wise men, magicians, astrologers, strange gurus that would feel very uncomfortable in our current worship setting, but these guys showed up to worship the new king of the Jews and they start asking around Jerusalem, where is he? We're looking for him. And uh, the current king of Israel, a guy named Herod, and the rest of the town are like, what do you mean, the new king? And so they begin to ask questions, and they search the scriptures, and they find out the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and so they send the wise men over to Bethlehem. Go look for, those chi- for the child. If you find him, come back, tell us. And we'll, we'll go and worship him too. And of course, imagine I do. They find the baby, and they fall down, and they worship him. They give him lavish gifts, and then they are divinely warned in a dream, hey, don't go back to Herod go home a different route and so they leave and this brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 2 verse 13 it says when they had gone an angel of the lord appeared to joseph in a dream get up he says take the child and his mother and escape to egypt and stay there until i tell you because herod is going to search for the child to kill him and so he got up he took the child and his mother during the night and they left for egypt Where they stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'm just positive that these magi that came to worship the new king never intended for a bunch of baby boys to be killed because they showed up looking for Jesus. But that's what happened. Now after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to t- take the child's life are dead. And so he got up and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. That's as far as we're going today. On the surface, it's just a tragic tale of a young family that had to flee as refugees in order to save the life of their son, and they were able to get out while a whole lot of other families weren't, and their kids were killed. And then even after the immediate danger passed, this family realized they can't go home because it's still not safe to return and so they move up north into the Galilean region and they live there so they have been persecuted they have been displaced and and Mary and Joseph who have decided to agree to be part of God's redemptive work in the whole world have had their entire lives turned upside down things are not going well for them it's a really sad story and yet when we begin to dig beneath the surface all of a sudden we come across some surprisingly good news. For one, Matthew is just a Bible nerd, and the way that he tells this story to those who are familiar with the Old Testament, we're like, wait, this sounds familiar. Where else have I heard about a deliverer who as a baby was saved from an evil king, issuing a verdict to kill all the baby boys? who then got to come back after those who were trying to kill you are dead. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what happened to Moses. Where else have I heard a story about about a Hebrew person who was saved by leaving in the middle of the night from a plague of destruction that was killing everyone else's boys? And going through a watery baptism into the wilderness for 40 days there to be tested. Oh yeah, that happened to the Israelites at Passover. And now Matthew is actually telling Jesus' story to follow that pattern. So after he flees in the middle of the night to escape the destruction coming on all the other boys, he's going to be baptized in the Jordan River. He's going to go into the wilderness for 40 days there to be tested. All right, Matthew is setting us up to see Jesus as the promised deliverer. And it's just a subtle like background pattern that would give us hope. And three times in this passage, Matthew says, this is what, uh, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, through the prophet, through the prophets, plural, and that's important. And so we need to look at what in the world do the prophets say? Because when we think about how prophecy should be fulfilled, we tend to think, well, It means that if we go to the Old Testament, we're going to read, oh, the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, got it, we make the connection. But that's not how it always works, and I am not exaggerating to say that thousands of scholarly pages have been written, trying to figure out what Matthew is doing with the Old Testament here in this passage, because he makes three Old Testament quotes, he seems to be really pushing this idea, and the rest of us are really confused. How are you reading your Old Testament, Matthew? So some people think Matthew's crazy, but I don't. Rather, I think Matthew is a genius and the rest of us need to play catch up. So another question I asked about Portland. Let's ask about international travel. Has anyone here physically laid eyes on the pyramids at Giza? Okay, then we can all collectively add that to our bucket list, maybe one day. All right, follow-up question. Was anyone told like I was growing up, that even with all of our modern machinery and technological know-how, it would be hard, if not impossible, for us to build the pyramids at Giza. Okay, yeah, you guys are, you heard it too. I don't know if it's actually true or not, but that's what I was told. Despite everything that we have going for us, we're not sure we could build those pyramids. But it's an undeniable fact that they figured out how to, and the rest of us are left to reverse engineer the process. All right, we're going to try to reverse engineer what Matthew is doing with this Old Testament. And again, on the surface, it's this terrible, tragic tale, and you start digging underneath, and all of a sudden, you're going to be surprised by what you find. So let's start with the first one. Out of Egypt I called my son. If you have a Bible and it has a footnote, you're like, oh, Hosea 11.1. So we turn back to the book of Hosea. So if you don't know where that's at, just go back like 30 pages in your Bible approximately. Hosea 11 1, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. All right. In Exodus 4, the nation of Israel is called God's son. That makes sense. And this passage seems to be about Israel in the past. And I'm not really seeing how this has anything to do with Jesus. So Matthew, what's that? Well, into the weeds we go. All right. How is Hosea using the term Egypt? Well, right here, it's really clear. He's referring to the place that has pyramids and the Nile River and everything else like that. Oh, but wait, you say. If we read down five verses and we go to 11 verse 5, we read, will they not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? Oh. So if you didn't know, Hosea is living centuries after the original exodus. And he is saying that in his day and age, the northern kingdom of Israel is going to go into exile. They're going to be taken captive by the world superpower that is the empire of Assyria. And how does he describe Israel being taken to captivity? He says it's like they're going to Egypt. Egypt is not just a physical location. It is a state of existence that sucks. It's going to happen again. And if you keep reading in chapter 11 of Hosea, you're going to get down to verses 10 and 11. And the Lord is going to roar like a lion and his children will come trembling from the west. They're going to come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. These are are similar ideas that are linked together in this Hebrew poetry. And I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Oh, one day God's going to do something really, really good. He's going to bring those exiles back from captivity in Assyria. And what language does Hosea use to describe that? He says they're coming out of Egypt again. Turns out, you can be in Egypt in Assyria. You can be in Egypt in Babylon. In fact, you can actually be in Egypt in Israel. For instance, Nehemiah and the returned exiles, if you're familiar with that story in the Bible in chapter 9, some of these people came out from captivity. They came back from Babylon. They're in Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the city. And how does Nehemiah describe the state of their existence? In Nehemiah 9:36 he says, "But God, see, we're slaves today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors, and because of our sins our harvest goes to the kings that you've placed over us." Nehemiah and the returnees, they're like, "We are in the land, but we're still in Egypt." And Matthew says, out of Egypt I called my son, because the evil oppressive king is not the king of Egypt, it's the king of Israel in Jerusalem, and his name is Herod, and God is rescuing his son. Hosea sees what happened in the past to the nation of Israel as a pattern of what God is going to do in the future for the entire nation, and he's not the first prophet to do that. Moses did that, And again, now we're getting really deep, and so remember everything I I talked about during our Torah series. You got it? Okay, good. Go back to Numbers 23 and 24, and there's a prophecy that God brought Israel out of Egypt. And then the very next oracle of a guy named Balaam says, speaking of the king to come in the distant future, God brought him out of Egypt. What happened to Israel in the past is a pattern of what's going to happen one day to the Messiah, to the king. And it's like Matthew is just this amazingly nerdy Bible guy. And so he's using this Hosea quote, out of Egypt I called my son as a handle to like yank on the entire scope of new Exodus imagery from the entire scriptures. And the whole point is Jesus not only is being saved, Jesus is the one through whom God is going to save all his people. He's the one who's going to bring us home. And that point becomes more clear when we get to the next biblical passage. Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And we read in Matthew and we're like, oh, okay, apparently long ago there's this prophet named Jeremiah who knew that a bunch of Bethlehem babies were going to be murdered uh, at the time of the Messiah. And so we go back to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we read, this is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramo, mourning, and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because there are no more, and then we read the context around it, we're like, how is this about Jesus at all? I don't, I don't get it. Because ironically enough, well, a few things. First, let me explain what's going on in this particular verse. If you don't know who Rachel is, she is an ancient matriarch of the people of Israel, This is the ancient Israel version of, if I were to say that on that day, Martin Luther King Jr. was weeping over the grave of George Floyd. You guys have a sense poetically of what I just did. I'm taking a a figure from the past, transporting them symbolically to the the present to describe a a tragedy that took place. This is what's happening. So in Jeremiah's day, the southern nation of Judah is going to go into exile in Babylon. And the staging ground where the Babylonian Empire is going to gather together all these Israelite captives before they yank them off on a forced march to go hundreds of miles away from their home is in a place called Ramah. And so Jeremiah is describing this matriarch of Israel weeping over the fact that the children of Israel are going to go away. But the irony of this passage is that it comes right in the middle of the most hopeful place in the entire book of Jeremiah. In fact, the very next line says, This is what Yahweh says, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears because your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy and there is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their own land. See, Jeremiah says, Rachel, you don't need to cry anymore because all of those exiles who are going away, guess what? One day, God who created heaven and earth and loves his people and keeps his promises is going to bring them back. And it will restore your fortunes. One day, good news, that's so astounding you cannot believe it will come, and you're going to be looking around going, things were better than I ever imagined they could possibly be. Don't cry unless it's happy tears. And it's like Matthew is reading about this slaughter of these babies in Bethlehem and the Messiah having to actually vacate the premise of the nation of Israel, and he's quoting Jeremiah. This is, this is one more instance of God's people suffering by brutal empires ruling the world. But you know what? If you read beneath the surface, we're going to be surprised by what we find. Because the context, if you know your Bible, is to say, but don't cry. Why? Because they're coming home. And I think, one, Jesus is going to come home. And two, just to fast forward where I'm, I'm going this morning, is I think because of the promise of the resurrection of the dead, I think that there's going to be an answer for all of those families that lost their children. I think one day justice will be done. And one day the God that made heaven and earth is going to right the wrongs of this cruel world and do so so spectacularly that the rest of us are just going to be dumbfounded. I think it's going to be okay. And to his last quote, he will be called a Nazarene. This one really has us puzzled because there's just nowhere in the Old Testament that we read anything about Nazareth or Nazarene. And so people have postulated two explanations that I think make a lot of sense one is in the New Testament when people find out Jesus is from Nazareth they go wait where what good thing could come out of Nazareth and so they tie it to the prophecy that God's suffering servant will not be someone that we have any regard for (laughs) from an outward perspective but I think it's more and at this point hooray for scholars and people who know Hebrew Matthew is making a pun God bless him it's a holy work uh, he's making a pun about Jesus being a stick man. Nazareth means the sticks. This is the middle of nowhere. But Matthew says the prophets talked about a stick. Actually, if you go into the Old Testament, he, they talked about a branch, a shoot from the tribe of Jesse. That because of Israel's sins, this great tree that was the monarchy and the dynastic line of King David has been chopped down and everything looks dead on the surface. It's a stump. And God prophesied that one day this shoot, this branch would spring up out of something that looked dead. And it would be the Messiah who would restore the fortunes of the people of Israel, lead them back from slavery, atone for their sin, rule over the nations. And as you guys are familiar hearing during the Christmas story, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God everlasting father, prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end and he will rule on the throne of his father, David. He's coming. He's coming. And so instead of thinking like, oh, look for Nazareth, go look at branch passages from the scriptures. And all of a sudden we're like, well, which one? Because there's a lot. There's Isaiah 4 and Isaiah 11 and Jeremiah 23 and Jeremiah 33 and Ezekiel, I think, 29. And it's everywhere. And Matthew is just using this cluster term to say all that is coming true in the person and the work of jesus so on the surface we have this tragic tale of a refugee family running from their lives of one more injustice perpetrated in the name of preserving power by an evil dictator and people finding that it's not safe to go home but we dig beneath the surface and all of a sudden we realize that through this nastiness of human evil god is working out his plans for good that there is hope, that there's going to be a restoration, that there is goodness on its way. Just wait for it. And this is, to me, the truth that changes our perspective and gives us hope because the story of Jesus on a human level is the story of a guy who escaped death as a baby, and he didn't escape death as an adult. Because at the end of Matthew's gospel, the rulers in Jerusalem, they got him. They got this upstart prophet from Nazareth, they said, you know what? He didn't do anything worthy of death. We're going to kill him anyway. And so they nailed him to a Roman execution device called a cross, and he died, and they buried him. And if that were all that it was, it would just be one more tragedy in human existence. And boy, don't we have enough of them. But the story of Jesus is the story of a God who raised Jesus from the dead and appointed him as king over the world and promises that one day every wrong will be righted, and one day God will wipe away every tear. From the faces of his people, and this truth, this resilient truth—that come what may in our lives, no one can take our hope from us, because God can raise the dead. That no matter what disastrous situation we may find ourselves in, God can raise the dead. No matter how broken things may come, God—nothing that we can do can stop God from bringing good through this situation. And it's the kind of hope that is given. Given purpose and meaning to people in every disastrous situation you can think of, from those who are going through cancer to Cory ten Boom and facing the Holocaust and prisoner of war camps in World War II Europe, to slaves in the American South, to people sailing on a ship far from home. It's a kind of truth that gives hope to me when I start panicking in my life thinking about my kids, I don't know if any of you parents ever face that when you realize, like, I love these kids, and then you soberly realize that you can't keep them safe from everything out there and from all the people who might try to hurt them. And at that point, I can just hyperventilate or I can pull an ostrich and bury my head in the sand or I can trust that there is a good God who loves me and loves them and is powerful enough and he can raise the dead, then no situation is beyond his ability to bring good out of it. And I can just relax. I'm convinced that no matter what we do, this truth is something we can take home and will change the way that we live. And so it's simple, and it almost feels stupid to say this, but guys, I I want us to just grapple with God's word and renew our hope. Seriously, just study the scripture. Why? Because Matthew seems to think that all of it matters and that it's worth knowing and that if we really understood what it said, we would have great hope and we'd love Jesus all the more. But if you're not familiar with the scriptures and if you don't have any, any like regular plan of like, how do I even read it? Let me just say, start here. Start with the truth about Jesus, read the gospels and meditate on the resurrection from the dead. And so the next time someone texts you, Pointing your your attention towards a disaster that is taking place in the world right now, whether that's the potential flare-up in the Middle East, what's going on between Israel and Gaza, whether that's that's the upcoming presidential election in America, everyone get ready, here we go again. Um, like, what would it be if we realized that at the core of all things, like we are unthreatened by any situation? because no one can take our hope away that one day God will bring his people home. Maybe just think about the resurrection. Maybe the next time you find out about a tragedy and someone dying, and like, how could God possibly make good out of this? Don't ask me. I don't know. It's not my job. It's his. So I'm going to tell him about it and say, you deal with this. Because of Jesus dying on a cross, like the epitome of, of human evil at its worst, murdering an innocent man who didn't deserve to die, was actually the very moment that God triumphed over the forces of evil and ushered in the best redemption story the world has ever heard of, then I trust that somehow, way, God can bring goodness out of this too. And so family of of grace, this is just my hope, is let let these words sink into us. And maybe, you know, stretch goal, maybe one day, years from now, after we have pondered and meditated and wrestled through the text of the scripture so much, maybe we'll go back to Matthew's gospel and we'll say, hey, Matthew, you know what? You're not wrong, but you're not exhaustive. There's more goodness about Jesus you could have mentioned. And Matthew, one day when we meet him, we'll go, I know, isn't it great? Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we need you. Lord, we need your salvation because there is evil in this world that we cannot cope with. God, beneath the service of, of much of our lives, some of us are, are struggling, and, and we will never tell another soul of the aches and the pains and the trauma that we have been through. And so, Father, I praise you that because of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, Lord, what has been broken will be re and remade, and, and one day, somehow, you're going to bring your good plans through it for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust that you're good and you're capable. And Father, for the rest of us, when, when the surface of our lives is falling apart around us and we wonder, like, how could things possibly get any worse than they currently are, I pray that this truth would, that is just buried deep in our hearts would just sprout up and, and spring through and give us hope and resilience that we would know that somehow, way, yet this too is not beyond your saving power and that you are the God who loves us and is going to take care of us. And as you protected Jesus, Lord, you're going to protect us, whether from death or through death, I don't know. But we have only life in your presence to look forward to. And so, Lord, may this truth change our attitudes and change our lives and give us resilience and encouragement because we need that. So, Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the day. And thank you for these people. Lord, help us to walk in your ways now and forever. Amen.